Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I am here as ever with my colleague, the Basil Brush of music archivism, Mark Pringle. <laughs> Hi, Barney. <laughs> Hi, Mark. And we are both sitting here with our special guest, John Savage. Good morning. Welcome, John. <laughs> Good morning, Barney. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, John. We're absolutely thrilled to have you here. We'd be thrilled to have you here anyway, but we're especially thrilled to have you here to talk about your new Joy Division book, This Searing Light, The Sun and Everything Else, which is an oral history of this extraordinary group. It's an extraordinary book. I learned so much about Joy Division. I have always been obsessed by Joy Division, so it fed my obsession. And we're going to talk a bit about what this group meant, what they continue to mean. You go all the way back, really, with Joy Division. You saw them very early. You were based in Manchester for a while. You've written brilliantly about Manchester. Tell me just your first awareness of Joy Division or pre-Joy Division, Warsaw. Well, I went to the last night of the Electric Circus. It's the first time I ever went to Manchester. It was in October 77, and I went to interview Hal Devoto, who was just on the point of launching his new group magazine. Yes. And, in fact, they played one of the last nights of the Electric Circus, and he gave me... A sort of quite an elliptical, haughty interview, and then I hung around. <laughs> the best kind. I hung around with Buzz Cox, and who I knew already, and I went to the last night of the Electric Circus, which is two nights, and there were loads of groups on. And the interesting thing about that period was there were quite a lot of competent punk groups. There were quite a lot of punk groups who had been groups before punk and just sped everything up. So, <laughs> you know, step forward the drones, who were absolutely terrible. And I was more interested in the groups who weren't competent, but had an ambition that went way beyond their ability. Yes. And there was a particular sound at that period, which is very hard to describe, but is of a group which had a vision in their heads and were trying to get there but couldn't, mm. but you thought they might get mm. there. And I was very interested in the oddities anyway, because it was early autumn, 77, I was completely bored with punk, as it had become, you know, a music industry phenomenon and become formula, um, yes. a formula. And so I was interested in the oddities, and there were several that night. There were the worst, who just, there were three of them, and... <laughs> They looked like they'd stepped out of Mad Max and they just did Velvet Underground type drones with a Motucker beat. And then there were the prefects from Birmingham area yeah. and they had a song called I've Got VD, which lasted for 20 <laughs> seconds <laughs> and consisted of Rob Lloyd, the singer, shouting out, I've got VD, about five times and that was it. And then, and that was their sort of prog rock opus. Well, and, then, and then they did have a later on. They did have a prog rock opus called Bristol Road Leads to Dakar, which lasted about ten minutes. And then there was Warsaw, yeah. and they weren't very good, but there was something there. Mm. And I wrote some words to that effect in sounds, and that started the whole thing really. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things the book explores, of course, is the side of the band had that they, the, the record would reproduce the aggression and kind of edge of their live sound. And of course, when they first heard what Martin Hannett was doing with their music in the studio, at least two or three of them were underwhelmed. Um, and of course, what many of us think now is is that. That is such a huge part of what made Joy Division so distinctive. 
Well, yes. I mean, Joy Division were extraordinary live, and it's still that, really, that haunts me, apart from a few records. Unknown Pleasures, when it came out, was... It wasn't a slap in the face, but it was a surprise, because it wasn't how they sounded live. Live, they were extremely raw. Yes. And very intense and heavy. Yes. In the classic sense, Joy Division were heavy, and there was not much of that on the LP. It's a very strange LP... I listened to it again recently, really quite intently, and a lot of the songs are very tamped down. There's not a lot of guitar. Mm. You know, Candidate is a very good example. There's mm. hardly any. There's just a little smear of guitar in it, and a lot of them fade in very slowly. There's all sorts of odd synthesizer noises and crashes and glasses yeah. smashing all the way through. So it's an entirely different thing. It's much more psychedelic than Joy Division were live, but then that psychedelic quality, I think, made them something different. And I think there was an interaction between the group and Martin, which, after Unknown Pleasures, became more focused. And you can certainly see in the book, there's a wonderful picture taken by Daniel Meadows of Bernard and Martin in the studio working on These Days, which yeah. is one of my favourite Joy Division yeah. songs. And in These Days, you have what sounds like a synthesizer, but it isn't. It's Bernard's guitar through a very, very fast closed gate. And so they started to work with him as opposed to him imposing his ideas. Yeah. Do you think they also started adapting their live sound to what they produced on the record? I mean, the only time I ever saw them was actually on television, and so it goes... And they sounded on So It Goes pretty much like they sound on the record. Yes, I think so. Well, I think it was a, a development. And yeah. If you look at Joy Division, they developed very, very quickly. And within a year, they basically recorded three albums worth of material. Right. So there's Unknown Pleasures, and then there was the Phantom album between Unknown Pleasures and Closer, which was all Transmission, Dead Souls, Kamakino, Something Must Break, all those songs, which came out eventually on Still or even later on Substance. Right. I mean, the irony, of course, is that if they'd got their way and some other producer had sort of captured what they saw as their live sound, we might not be talking about Joy Division in the same way today. Hannett, I really think that Hannett was, was some kind of genius. I don't know how you feel. One of the pieces that we're featuring on the homepage this week is your interview with Hannett <laughs> from 89, I think it yeah. was, and which you draw on, obviously, yeah. for the book. I mean, what I'm before we talk about Ian Curtis and the other members of Joy Division, just what was Martin Hannett like? I really liked Martin. I was, became very friendly with him, and I spent a whole lost summer in his flat in Didsbury. <laughs> we would drive around in the middle of the night and look at industrial estates, as you do, yeah. as, you, as you did then, um, with Suzanne O'Hara, who was his partner then. Yes. And my first experience of Martin must have been going to Strawberry during the Unknown Pleasure sessions yeah. and going there. And, of course, with Martin, there was always a very strong joint around. And then going into the <laughs> no studio... No more than that. He wasn't doing heroin He never, point. ever did heroin, heroin in front of, in front of me. No, right. Never, ever. I had no knowledge of that until a lot later, and it's a great shame. And then going to the studio, and he was tinkering around in a corner of the studio where there was a lift. And in the lift, he had a big Leslie speaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of those yeah. woo, woo, woo speakers. We love and Leslie, he was playing around with this Leslie in the lift and sending the lift up and down. I said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm <laughs> recording the lift. Um, dummy. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. <laughs> but no, I was very fond of Martin. I didn't work with him, but I spent a lot of time with him. Mm. And he had a very good brain and he was very funny. Mm. 
uh-huh. and he always had great drugs. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, one, one of the really important things about Joy Division's story is that they were lucky enough to intersect with these really interesting maverick characters, not least Tony Wilson, people who were different from not just people in the record industry, people in the indie business. They were, to greater or lesser degrees, they were cultured and well-read. And I think this was a very important factor in, certainly one might say, in Curtis's kind of self-education. He was quite impressively self-educated guy, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, it's quite like the Sex Pistols, in that the Sex Pistols had quite a lot of older people around them as well, feeding them. Yeah information which actually as a young person that's all you want you just want information you don't want somebody saying what's cool and what isn't you Mm. just want information so yes there was that i mean paul morley in the book says something very entertaining which is that basically with tony wilson rob gretton who was their manager and martin hannett you know you had the circus Mm. there was no need to run away with the circus because you had it right there (laughs) so they had three very intelligent, older people. I mean, Tony was born in 1950. Martin was born in 1948. Rob was born in early 53, which is the same year I was born. And the band were basically born in 56, 57. So that's the kind of age range. And mm. if you're in your early 20s, in your 20s, that's quite a big difference. Mm. So I didn't really hang out with the band. Mm. I mean, I'd bump into them, but I was friendly with Rob and Tony and Martin because they were sort of more like my yeah, age. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that... Rob is always underestimated in this because he was the guiding light. He was the guy that had the vision. He was the guy that said, we don't have to go to London and talk to companies in the music industry. We can do this ourselves. And that was fundamental to Joy Division because it enabled them to work at their own pace and to develop at their own pace and not to get into the cycle, which a lot of groups did then, punk and and even groups that came out after punk. You've got to have a hit single. You've got to get into the music industry churn. You've got to have a hypnosis Mm -hmm. cover. You've got to have a primary coloured sleeve, Mm -hmm. da-da-da-da-da-da, which happened to so many punk or quote-unquote new wave groups. And so they were free from all that because... If you sold, you know, there were 10,000 copies of Unknown Pleasures in First Issue. Well, if they sold out on those, they, mm. the band, in the end, would probably make as much money as they made, would make selling 250000 mm. on a major. Yeah, yeah. So the economics were entirely different. It enabled them to stay in Manchester, which is very, very important for them. And also Manchester at that point... It's so odd that Joy Division becomes such a big group. I'm still surprised by this. There was only about 200 people there sure. who were involved in, quote-unquote, the scene. And that wasn't just Factory and Joy Division. It was Rabid and Object and the other labels who mm. were going then. Yeah. You mentioned the word psychedelic, or you used the word psychedelic earlier in relation to that sound. I mean, I never think of them as psychedelic at all, but that's probably partly because of the mythology of Manchester, the darkness, the monochromatic elements of their design, you know, the black album and the white album and, and, and their whole and kind of appearance. Drugs. You were taking different drugs but at the bar. To me, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I get where you're coming, but to me it's not psychedelic music. Yeah. It's kind of near-Gothic futurism, synthetic near-Gothic futurism that I happen to absolutely love. Just the, the, the sound of the drums on Disorder, the first track on Unknown Pleasures, is still unlike any drum sound I've, I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. 
And all the kind of taxes, everything that Hannett managed to sort of clothe their sound, I think is is so startling. I don't think anyone's there are there are bands like Interpol who've who've sort of imitated Joy Division. <laughs> you can't see John's gesture there. Um, but but uh, you know, no, no one's come close to capturing this well, spectral, unearthly, doomy sort of quality. When I went the first thing when I arrived in Manchester in April nineteen seventy nine. I was met by Tony... To work for Granada? Yeah, to yes. work for Granada. A job which Tony Wilson helped me to get. Tony right. Wilson... Paul Morley had gone to London at the end of the previous year. Tony wanted somebody who had reasonable access in the music press mm. to write about his group. So he helped me to get this job at Granada. I did it myself. I had a final board. And I went there in April 1979. The first thing that happened, Tony arrives with a huge bloody joint and says... Well, you're in Manchester now. Up here, we smoke dope and we like the first public image album. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my introduction to it all. And my introduction was through starting to smoke joints again, which I hadn't done during the punk period. And obviously, if you're anywhere around Hannett, that was mandatory. So to me, that's filtered through that experience. And I do think there's an ambient quality to particularly the album, Unknown Pleasures, and that ambient quality mm. helped me to orient around Manchester, which is a new and very, very different city mm, uh, yeah. in which I was living. Mm. And Manchester was a total culture shock after London at that point. Mm. It was very poor. There was an enormous amount of dereliction. The culture at Granada was very, very different from anything I'd been exposed to. It was an odd mixture of left-wing and extremely conservative. Mm. People dressed terribly. Well, you know, I was obviously I was gay and reasonably out about it. And, mm. But all the gay blokes in Granada dressed in pastels and listened to bad disco music. So <laughs> that wasn't an option. So <laughs> were you tempted? <laughs> well, no, and actually, to some extent, more fool. You like disco? Yeah, well, exactly. To some extent, more fool. I didn't really start liking disco till the eighties. Till mm. later on, the eighties, when I spent quite a bit of time with Vince Celesi, who was obviously yes. the granddaddy of it right. all. And he would sit me down with some marijuana and say, John, you've got to listen to this. <laughs> so my yeah. experience of all this is seen through those particular kind of drugs. Right. And I'm not saying you should take drugs, because I, don't, I think every drug has Stay its Stay in price. school, kids. Whatever. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not, I'm not celebrating this. Mm. It's just a fact of life. Mm. So my experience of Manchester... The drug I was taking was marijuana. Sure, yeah. And so that made me feel that Joy Division... I mean, there was a Doors element to mm. Joy Division, and I was, had been a huge fan of the Doors mm-hmm. when I was 13, 14. They were huge for me. And that element was the break-on through to the other side element. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's the way I saw them. I always saw them with that psychedelic tinge. Mm. And if you listen to some like auto suggestion where something's somebody's eating a crisp or something mm. through put through massive amounts of reverb, mm. there's a lot of and, and Martin was a psychedelic producer. That's mm. that's where he came from. He was born in '48. He was a hippie. He didn't give a shit. Sure. He had really long hair. Mm. He'd been involved with the Manchester music scene since the late '60s and just didn't care about fashion. So he had this vision in his head. So in many ways, he updated the sound of psychedelia for the 80s. Mm. Well, it probably is about different drugs. <laughs> when I was listening to Joy Division, I was doing different drugs. I certainly wasn't doing psychedelics. Yes, also, the, the, the punk drug, certainly in London, was amphetamine, yeah. sulfate, yeah. uh, which I kind of basically spent my entire art school, 74 to 78, 
Yes, horrible yeah. stuff. It was really awful. Yes. I hated it. Yeah. And then cocaine, which is also really horrible yeah. stuff, and I hated it. No. And London became un. But to me, the London punk scene became unbearable because of that. Everybody yeah. was taking powders and pills, and it was mm. just disgusting. <laughs> well, and one of the, to me, one of the paradoxes uh, of Joy Division is that there's something pretty dark and almost quite cold about their music, and yet it's sort of unbearably moving. And I wanted to just explore that a little bit because it's not obviously emotional music. You only have to think of Ian Curtis's vocal style, the way he sang. There's a kind of artificiality about it, an almost disembodied quality. And yet, as I say, I think that there is, there is so much emotion there, but kind of at one remove. Well, yes. I mean, Ian was a cancer, if you believe in astrology, which is the most emotional sign on the hell zodiac. Mm. Um, and, of course, pop music is basically distilled emotion. That's what it's all about. Yeah. It's, in, it's emotion encapsulated in understandable form in two or three minute songs. Yeah. That's what pop music is. And you hear that now with all the auto-tune generation, which is incredibly heightened emotions. I mean, it's, it's pumped up so much. The problem with Joy Division is that everybody thinks about them in terms of the dreadful event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so everything is retrospectively smeared with the knowledge of that dreadful event. It's the same with Nirvana. Inevitably. And in fact, it wasn't inevitable. And I always saw one of the reasons I called the book This Searing Light was because I wanted to get away from that doom and gloom stuff. I didn't want it to be called Insight or, I don't know, mm. whatever, mm. Closer or some mm. terrible book that has a title, a group title there. I wanted to get to the light aspect, and the light aspect was quite stark because they had stark lighting on stage, mm. just a sing- single, you know, one or two lights. Well, they had to for, yeah, they had for the to. reasons of Curse's epilepsy. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but there was a lot of light in their music. There was a lot of energy... And there was transcendence there. Yes. Um, and so I always saw Joy Division as being balanced between the light and the dark. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I really like the fact that you've got the words light and sun yeah. on the cover of a book about Joy Division. Uh, I think that's refreshing. One of the things that I did after reading your book was to go back and listen to that radio interview that Curtis did on Radio Blackburn, right? Yeah. Just to remind myself of how he sounded as just a guy from Macclesfield chatting and it struck me once again this this extraordinary sort of disconnect between this very sweet mild-mannered guy who's just talking in a a very sort of blokish way about Joy Division and what they're going to do and what we I suppose what we read into the story of Ian Curtis what we know about him the fact that you know, he was kind of steeped in William Burroughs and he read J.G. Ballard and he, when he read Nietzsche and all this stuff is, you hear that guy talking and you think, what, this guy reads Burroughs? And I was fascinated to learn from your book that he actually did meet Burroughs at that event in, uh, in Belgium? Yeah, Holland? Plank, Plank, Holland. Plank, Plank, yeah, Plank, yeah. Plank. What everybody forgets about that period is getting information was quite hard. And if you were involved in any idea of a counterculture or the underground, you had to get your hands dirty. And that meant going to... I mean, there were imprints like Paladin Picador who would sell avant-garde material in Smith's. But there were also these grubby shops, which I absolutely adored, which would sell a mixture of soft porn, Mills and Boone, Nazi books... 
and old pop culture material, yeah. any kind of Gnostic distaff material you'd get there. And people would haunt these places. Yeah. And there's a good description in the book of this, this kind of bookshop, which eventually became Savoy Books, which Ian and Stephen haunted. Because if you wanted to break on through in 74, 75, how are you going to do it? You weren't going to do it by listening to Sad Cafe. Mm-hmm. And you weren't going to do it by listening to the Doobie Brothers, mm-hmm. who had turned crap by that stage. So what were you going to do? You know, you had to go and find the forgotten and the outre, almost the taboo, Mm. in order to get some traction. And that's what people did Mm. at that time. I remember doing that. I did it for years. So there was this material available for the people who were prepared to dig deep. And Curtis was interested in digging deep, and he was interested in penetrating under the surface, simply on the level of the music he listened to and the material that he read. Yes, yes. It also explains his... Gravitation or his attraction to Anik, of course, who you know read Dostoevsky, and he, you know, it was a big part of why he strayed from his wife and child. There was that pull towards intellectual European culture. I think. Yes, I mean, I think I see that as being part of a broadening process for Joy Division in general. And if you look at Bernard, Bernard started to get very interested in European synthesizer music. Yes, Kraftwerk, and then he went to Berlin met Mark Reeder. Yes. I did have a quote, which I didn't put in the book, of Bernard talking about Mark Reeder's influence after Ian had died Mm. and saying he was very down and upset. And Mark said, come over to Berlin. And they smoked weed and they went down to the Metropole. Mm. And the Metropole will play a mixture of Euro Disco, Chironi, Supernature, all that kind of stuff. Quite obscure stuff, Underwater by Harry Thurman. These fabulous early ambient kind of synthesizer, long mood disco pieces. Yes. Uh, and so that was the way in which Joy Division were going. They were coming out of Salford and Macclesfield and going out into Europe and eventually into America and the world. Mm. So Anik and Ian was part of that process. But, of course, this intellectual relationship it was put further stress on Well, them. astonishingly, right at the end of the book... I can't remember who it is talking. Mark Reader. Mark Reader claims they didn't even have a sexual relationship. Well, I put it in the book because I believe what he said. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that I don't believe that people said I didn't put in the book. No, for sure. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, it's a harrowing read when, when you, there's so many people you interviewed talking about how tormented Ian was and how guilty he felt, how essentially he was an honourable guy. His fatal flaw was trying to keep everybody happy and it, and it almost kind of destroyed him. Well, I think the problem with Ian is simply the illness. I think the core, the core mm. problem is the illness because from the illness stems everything else. In particular, the, the actual physical manifestation of the illness, which mm. was triggered... I mean, the awful thing that I realised in just going chronologically and piecing everything together was him having fits on stage. Now, that's yeah. not sustainable. Yeah, no. no. And the worst one in, in particular being at the rainbow. The rainbow, yeah. yeah. And then I just thought after that, well, now I get it. You know, mm. that's just... You can't carry on like that. It's really devastating. Mm. And then doing a gig after that. Yeah. I mean, it's insanity. This is insanity. Um, and they all say that very ruefully, don't they? If we'd know, There were no grown-ups around. There was no one. You know, Tony Wilson wasn't a grown-up, I think. Bernard says that. No. I don't think 
people knew how to cope. It was 1979, 1980, it was Manchester. It might as well have been 1950 in many areas, including the very poor quality of care that Ian got for his epilepsy. So he was on very, very heavy tranquilizers. And they aren't going to do you any good. And if you've got a very serious illness, you must start thinking, well, am I ever going to be able to have a life? And then on top of that, having the bad drugs, having the tension between Anik and Debbie, having the success of the band and his obligation to the band. The band were getting bigger and bigger and bigger from, yeah. from you know, particularly the sort of Lyceum date in mm. end of February. They were getting really big. I mean, that's a big haul to headline. Yes. And so I think when you put it all together and you put the events just in sequence, it certainly it became clear to me why what happened happened yes yes and love will tear us apart the most famous song you know after reading this book you see it as a pure expression of just his guilt and how tormented he felt by what was happening well the interesting thing about ian's writing is that he begins by inventing scenarios and situations so unknown pleasures is of a young man putting himself into various situations and maybe there's a bit of personal input quite a lot of personal input but certainly there's a sense with love will tear us part which was written in i can't remember exactly when i think it was debuted at might have even been debuted plan k so that's october 79 and would have been written shortly before that there's definitely a sense in which his writing after autumn 79 becomes much more personal yes which nobody realized because they'd been used to ian inventing scenarios and they thought he was still inventing scenarios but he hadn't it had actually changed it tipped and so a lot of the material on closer is just really personal and that's what makes it so harrowing particularly a song like isolation which is just so upsetting yes Mm. yeah absolutely is it fair to say that there has never been a front man like ian curtis well, what I think about Ian, I don't know, but what I think, I mean, maybe Iggy Pop, and Iggy was smart and tough enough to pull back. I mean, Iggy did the, I'm going to go on stage and I'm just going to go wild, you know. But I'm Iggy wore the silver pants and cut his chest and dived off stages. I mean, that was very different from Ian Curtis's very controlled, so brilliantly one of your interviews says it was almost like he was his own puppet yeah that's bob dickinson who was yeah, who's uh, very interesting in the book very, very eloquent and when people don't know who he is and he was a, a local journalist yeah. of considerable repute in manchester at the time and certainly what i tried to do in the book is talk to people like bob talk to people like liz naylor who were there and actually whose voices hadn't really been heard mm. that was very important to me I think with Ian, my thing with Ian is always the same. Most performers have stagecraft. All performers have stagecraft. So they knew, know exactly what to withhold and what to give at any given point. You go and see, I went, remember around the same time when I was writing the Mojo feature about Joy Division in 93, 94, maybe a bit later. I went to That's see, 94, I think it was. I went to see David Bowie. And I was just super impressed because he was a consummate performer. He knew exactly what to give. Everything was just so precise and well-oiled and authentic. It wasn't as though he was being a fake. It was just he was a performer at the top of his game and he knew what to do, you know. And Ian didn't. Ian would just come out on stage, 
swing his arms for a bit, calibrate, they would start off with Dead Souls, which is, has a long instrumental introduction, and he would sort of yeah, work out what was going on. Just work out, and then he would just go for it. Yeah. And there were no holes barred. Mm. Now that is, he's probably the most electric performer I've ever seen in that sense, because you didn't know where it was going to go. And you couldn't take your eyes off him. And you can see a bit of that in the something else footage. You can. But again, that's not sustainable. There's something extraordinarily unselfconscious about him. When you talk about Bowie and Iggy and stagecraft, there's a self-consciousness there. With Curtis, you feel... Because right at the end of the book, I think Hannett and others say he's the only guy I could say who was channeling something. He really, he really was channeling the Gestalt. There's something... I know it sounds so sort of cliched, but there's something genuinely otherworldly about this boy. And I think about it, he's sort of the same age as me, and I'm listening to kind of closer, in a very dark place myself, and I'm just... I've been kind of obsessed by those records ever since because they do seem to channel something that's not obviously cathartic. Well, in a way, he was shamanistic. Yes. That's the only conclusion I could come to. You know, Joy Division's music was very loud and very punishing. So that would have helped him go into those states. But this is an experiment. I mean, it's a bit like, to some extent, I don't know how conscious it was, but Jim Morrison would experiment with notions of performance and crowd control. Mm. And I know that Ian was a fan of The Doors. Initially, Joy Division sounded quite a lot like The Doors, and The Doors were a very big group, of a chaotic group, Mm. in a funny kind of way, much underrated. So there was this idea of an experiment. Um, Maybe it started as an experiment, and then it became something else, and it took over. What I do remember about seeing Joy Division is that the other three, Peter, Bernard and Stephen, would, they wouldn't move a great deal. Bernard hardly moved at all. Mm. Hookie would swing his bass around a mm. bit. But they all made a solid triangle behind Ian. Yeah. And that was very important. So they were there to literally, physically, in the way they stood on stage and behaved, to support Ian. Yeah. To provide him with a sound and a stage where he could go backwards and forwards and do what he was going to do. I mean, there's a wonderful bit in one of the films that Richard Boone shot at the Apollo where, and Richard's very good about this in the book, he said they had a huge fight about where the mic was and one of the other guy who was with him wanted to pan away from the mic to where Ian was dancing around. And Richard said, no, the tension is on the mic. And, of course, Ian comes back out of nowhere onto the mic. Yes. And that's extraordinary. Yes, yes. And I can't emphasise, I'm still haunted by seeing Joy Division live. For a long time, you couldn't really hear any Joy Division live. And when I worked on the Heart and Soul box set with Nick Stewart and Rob Gretton in 1997, we deliberately included a CD of live material so people could hear what they were like, in particular Bernard's guitar sound. And then, of course, since there's been, low, you know, if you go on YouTube, there's endless Joy Division live stuff. Mm. And there have been a lot of bootlegs. And, you know, they are extraordinary live. I mean, it's great that the book is, of course, as, as much about the other three, who, in their ways, were all very extraordinary as well. It wasn't just about curses. After all, the music was generated by the three of yeah. them. And yeah. Ian would just say, that's a good bit. Let's develop that. Uh, they were making art. I know this is very unfashionable to say, but they were making art and they were behaving like artists. 
And I just think that's really important to say. I know people shy away from this, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about art. We're not talking about money or we're not talking about... Pop stardom. Even pop stardom. We're mm. talking about people making art. And that, to me, is incredibly exciting because it can come from... And the fact that it comes from people who aren't privileged. Yes. I, I, you know, I, and that, I, was, a, that right. was a direct political point of me doing the book and also not putting myself into it. Mm. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm so fed up. It drives me insane. So much music writing is to do with personal experience. Mm, mm. Now, I don't care whether you saw The Clash in 1977 mm. with Tiggy and Winky and Mr. Fucking Bus. Piss <laughs> off. It's not interesting. <laughs> and so much music writing is like that. So yeah. I deliberately, except for a couple of mentions and a couple of visuals, took myself out of the narrative because mm. I've said so much about Joy Division. Sure. The whole point is it's them speaking. Yes. It's not me speaking. I've spoken quite enough about them, really. Look, John, I mean, it's just fantastic to talk about this. This searing light, The Sun and Everything Else, The Oral History of Joy Division by John Savage, is published by Faber very soon. And this week. This very week. If you have any interest in Joy Division, I can't recommend it highly enough. I found it pretty harrowing. I found it very, very illuminating, full of things I didn't know. And it's a deeply moving story. And Joy Division is great art. I absolutely concur with that. You talked about privilege there, John, and I wanted to ask you about your career. One of the things I love is this idea that you're working, you know, you're like us, sort of posh boy. <laughs> Three posh boys Barney, talking suburb, about... Suburban posh. Suburban posh, but so you were a Cambridge graduate, nonetheless, who was working for a law firm in the city, yeah. and in your spare time, you produced a punk fanzine. Yeah called London's Outrage. Well, How, tell us about that, because... Well, what it was is that I'm an only child, and I tried to find employment after I left Cambridge, and I knew I didn't want to do what my parents wanted me to do, but they ganged up on me, and I had no... This problem about being an only child is your parents actually gang up on you. There's two of them and one of you. It's very <laughs> hard. It, and my parents are both very strong characters. And so I didn't have any option but to do this law course. Um, and I hated every single minute of it. But I performed it. I went through the whole thing. I felt that was my debt to my parents. And once I'd done that, I could do what I wanted. And I hated everything. I hated the people. And, you know, I'd been through public school in Cambridge. I'd had eight years of it. And I was so bored with these people. Mm. I was really bored with these people. I just didn't find them interesting, except for a few friends that I had who were oddities anyway. And it's not what I wanted. I didn't want anything to do with it because I just thought it was boring and the people were, a lot of them were probably nascent Brexiters. Um, <laughs> and, um, it was only a matter of time before we got yeah, the B sorry. word in. And so, and I'd always been obsessed with pop culture. So, because I'm a 60s child, I was 10 in 63, so I saw the whole of the 60s happen on telly. Mm. And that was my biggest, that's the way I saw the world. I didn't see the world through my parents' values or the values of my school or the values of that upper-middle-class education. Mm. I saw things in the world through music. How were your plummy tones, shall we say, received when you started writing for sounds? How did people like Jane Suck take, take to you? I know how, how highly you regarded her. Well, my, my get-out card was the fact that I'm gay. Right. 
So I was, you know, and being gay was really not great in 1977. I just felt like a total alien and outcast. It was horrible, really horrible. You know, you were coming out of the whole Thorpe case. Yeah. It was really, and it was, it was era of John Inman and Larry Grayson, who sure. now being sort of, you know, people are re-estimating them as kind of interesting performers at the time. It's so bloody grim. Jesus. Sure. Oh. Sure. And it was really hard for me to see that I could ever be happy. And so I was a, stuck in a job that I hated with people that I hated, wondering whether I was ever going to be able to have a life. Mm. So I was pretty angry. Mm. And when I saw The Clash and the Sex Pistols in late autumn 1976, that was, OK, that's it, right, this is what's going on. And also I'd left Cambridge. When I was there, I met a lot of people who, you know, had been around in the 30s. In fact, one of my friends there was a professor who'd known Guy Burgess. And so I was very interested in that idea of people rebelling against that background and how you would do that. And I was also very interested in the fact that I'd been involved at something I regard that whole education as something as historical. I'd done classics at university, so I'd been studying 2,000 years. And I thought, right, that's it. The past is the past. I want to be involved with something that's going on now. Mm. And it wasn't Martin Amis, it wasn't Julian Barnes, it was the Ramones <laughs> and Patti Smith and yes. the Sex Pistols and the Clash. Yes. They told me what I needed to know when I was a young adult emerging into a harsh world in 1976. Mm, mm, yeah. So it was natural for me then to start trying to write about this stuff. And, I mean, it was very difficult for a while. I remember going to see The Clash at the Rainbow... And it was my first music industry league, and I was reviewing it, and I stayed up all night on the, one of the rare occasions I took amphetamine. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I had to go into work the next day, and they had a sherry party. And sherry's completely disgusting. I don't know why they bothered with that stuff. <laughs> and I remember I'm sitting there with this glass of absolutely vile brown liquid, thinking, oh, shit. And then this guy came along who'd been at school with me and started talking to me. And I literally could not understand a word that he said. And then I realised I was in big trouble. Right. That I couldn't make this work. And I was not going to make this work. So I had to do something else. Mm. And eventually, of course... I carried on writing and I got a job at Granada, which we've already mm. discussed. And that was my get out. It was a job in big media. They were very hard to get. New career, new town. Mm. Thank you so much for coming and talking okay. about Joy Division and sounds and punk rock and, yeah. and everything else that you've been so interesting about. Mark, at this point, we're going to talk about the audio. The audio interview is pretty fascinating this time around. The journalist Maureen Payton takes a taxi ride around Bow, essentially, starting around in Bethnal Green and going to Bow with Dizzy Rascal. I was very intrigued because I long believed that Dizzy grew up in the estate that I lived in for 15 years, the Crossways estate. I was really disappointed to find out that he actually claims to be brought up in the Lincoln estate, which is the next one along. But it's actually a drive through my own 20s and 30s. Which Your is own fairly, hood. Fairly fascinating. It's startling that, that she's a much older woman, he's a very young man, very different classes and backgrounds. And that kind of shows in the interview, in a very nice way, you know, Maureen is, is charming, Dizzy is rather fabulous. He's a, he's a really bright, interesting guy. 
And so this first clip, she sort of raises the hoary old cliche that his life of crime and so on is rescued by music. And he says in this clip, not really. It inspired you, really, in a way, didn't it? To that sort of fight to get out of, you know, get out of the rut, really. Yeah, in a little way. You know what, to tell the truth, it, it, I weren't even doing it so much t- to get out of the... I know a lot of people say that, oh, I would do anything to get out of the game. It wasn't like that, really. It just, it happened. It, it just took me away. And it was more of a case of I had to leave to do to do what I was doing, not uh, yeah. I want to do this to, to get out. No, you know what I mean because the music was driving you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that by the time my friends had started selling crack, mm. like uh, at that, see that that age when you get to that age where everyone starts deciding what they're definitely going to yeah, do. Yeah. My friends were selling crack. Yeah. I was with them, but my money was coming from selling records and that. So yeah, I, I yeah. didn't have to do. I done my bits and bobs yeah. when I was younger. I done my little thing, but I didn't yeah. have to do that. Okay. So I saw it all yeah, with yeah, them and yeah, that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, that as far as he was concerned, making music was part of the same media and the same culture and the same place and time as all these other things were happening. It wasn't about separating himself off. As I said, he's, he comes over as a bright, interesting man. It's very much retrospective. It's about his background, growing up in council estates, being excluded from schools and all the sort of stuff. We'll play this next clip, which is him talking about London and the psychosis of skunk and so on and so forth. You know, he is growing up at a time which has now been very much talked about with the whole history of knife crime and so on and so forth. Well, you know, that environment was always there. Yeah. He talks about it very interestingly. London's a really hostile place. Right? Just from being around the country and going around there, like, like places like Kent and all I see it, the difference. Like, in London is just communication. Like, what one stare mm. can, can, can make a lot. A lot. You could be looking at someone just just admiring, but where everyone in London, it's the simplest thing is some people's faces are so set. Yeah. Like it looks like they're screwed, it looks like they're angry at you. And automatically you've like, Oh I see. If you're in that life, you're deciding yeah. whether is that a threat or what's going on. Yeah. And then Perhaps like I said, bang like that, shit happens. Yeah, start smiling at each other. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's as simple as that. But that's the main part. I think skunk just, I'm not saying skunk's to blame, but I I see a an act. I see the psychosis, I understand the psychosis now and people fucking makes people lazy for a start and smoke and can't want to do shit and just shit that they might think about if they was clearer mm. headed. They, they, they might they might not think about if they're fucking mm. their heads full of fucking Yeah, so, I mean, interesting stuff. We'll play another clip towards the end of the show. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, 12 years on from that interview. It's quite chilling to hear him talking about knife crime, yeah. um, given what's going on in our city at the moment. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, he's one of the great reporters of what it's yeah. like to grow up in well, that well, part well, of the city. I think that's the value of grime. I mean, do I listen to mm. much grime? I don't, but it's not for me, it's not by me, and so on and so forth. Mm. But... 
I really do appreciate it. And it, it does describe and sound like a London I know. As I said, I lived on the Crossways estate for 15 mm. years. Um, if not dizzy, I believe Tinchy Stride was running around my knees by the lifts, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I know the area very mm. well. And I saw what was happening right up through to the mid-90s when I left. Anyway, it's, it's a great snapshot. Right? I, I enjoyed the interview. I, d- I enjoyed particularly the fact that there was this sort of big age gap between them. Yes. And they're in the back of this town. Yeah. And she's almost like talking to him like like an aunt or something. She's <laughs> she's quite concerned. You do look after yourself. You know, don't get stabbed. It's very, it's very sort of caring, and it's a nice conversation. Yeah, and yeah. I do think he's one of the more. I mean, he is the great breakout star of that genre, Absolutely. and a much more sort of exuberant version of it than a lot of the other yes. crime artists. Yes, he's managed to just about hold on to retain the credibility yep. while while also going into. To yeah. the pop world and collaborating uh, with you know Lily Allen. Well, they, 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 yeah, talk, they talk about Lily Allen, don't yeah. they? No, yeah. anyway, it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's great. great. Yeah, really good. Really good. What next? Well, it's for you to tell us about what's new in the library this week. Right. Well, a few pieces here. Rave, nineteen sixty-four, uncredited report and an interview with the Yardbirds at the Crawdaddy Club, which is you know pretty fabulous. Yardbirds, Richmond upon Thames. Yes. Uh, and Eric Clapton says, we work ourselves right into a trance. If this were the interval, I couldn't talk to you the way I am now. I'd be on a different plane. Keith Ralph says, when we've gone properly into orbit, I end up dripping with sweat, like I've been chucked in the river. I mean, it's a great snapshot of the club itself. The audience yeah. have described the young girls who are getting there three hours early to get them get right in front of the stage. Right. And it's a snapshot of the proper London rock and roll club of the period. Next piece, 67, Melody Maker. Nick Jones' interview with George Harrison, who's in full Indian mystic bullshit mode. mode. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, is everything those Indian musicians do, it's just indescribable. It's an inner feeling, yeah, soul. Then he comes up with some pretty oddities, like, I think music is the main interest of the younger people. It doesn't really matter about the older people now, because they're finished anyway. <laughs> well, thanks, George. Says, says a 63-year-old. <laughs> John was sort of saying that earlier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, singles reviews from March 75, Colin Irwin, in which he pretty much destroys Bowie's Young Americans. How dare uh, I, I, Quite. One of my favourite records. He says, Quite, you scum, our Lord and Master speaks. In this contest, the Big B takes on a, the might of a soul-backing, energetic girly ooze and a complicated directionless song and fails. <laughs> he fights manfully, employing a wise Uncle Elvis-type voice and comes admirably close to bringing some sort of rhyme or reason to the jumble of brass, drums and backing vocals that are apparently hell-bent on destroying his lead. Do you remember President Nixon emerges strikingly from it? He yells young Americans at frequent intervals and the chorus suddenly breaks into a day in the life towards the end. His old lady was a scream on the hearty show the other week, but this is an identity Miss. Johnny Rotten interviewed by Susan Whittle, Cream 78. Cream were going to run a cover piece on the Pistols because it's coinciding with their American visit. And before it's gone to press, the band break up. And so she has this horrid phone interview with Johnny Rotten, who's, I think, hanging out with, is it Joe Stevens' place? Joe Stevens, yeah. yeah. Rotten's basically, you know, what I'm interested in is something that's anti-music of any kind. I'm tired of melody. He hadn't yet formed public image, but you can 
clearly just on the cusp of that. It's really interesting. And he does. There, there is a mention of a band which may be a sort of reggae, reggae-ish band. So there's something going on there. Paul Morley interviewed Japan from February 8, 1980, in the NME, and Paul's pretty foul in this. Quite honestly, <laughs> you know, he I mean, he regards them as pretty fraudulent. He he's grudgingly kind of, you know, he says grudging things about. Sylvian says, their music is cloying, lacks lucidity and spontaneity, while Sylvian's words lack consistency and substance and are just plain mediocre. Sylvian himself, for all his self-satisfaction, overconfidence, negative isolation, misguidance and self-glory, is no idiot. From where he is, such a strange and genuinely forbidding place, he is in control. Well... It's an odd piece. I mean, it's, it's in a way classic Morley. But people, people used to take attitudes about things. Yeah. And often I remember being on sounds. If enemy had plugged somebody, then you'd give them a bad review just because... Just because. Yes. You know, it was very catty and very bitchy. And actually, of course, Japan were just about to get really good. Yeah. I yeah, remember that, that Morley point. being Exactly quite, that point, yeah. I remember Morley being quite pro-Japan after this event, after 1980. Yeah. I mean, and that, that kind of fed into that era of them, the new romantics yeah. and new pop groups yeah. as champions. But it's interesting to you, Sir John, that there was, obviously there was rivalry between was the intense. three Inkies. Really you went from Sounds to Melody Maker, of course. Yeah. And was that a kind of cultural change for you? Yeah, well, I went to, I went to Melody Maker from Sounds because Alan Lewis hired Gary Bushell. Right. Uh, and I wasn't going to stay on the same paper right. as that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, Richard Williams was building a new team. Mm, you know, yeah. It was quite a different thing. He got in James Truman, he got in Mary Harron, David yes. Sigerson. Um, David Sigerson, yeah. Ian Birch was reviews editor, Michael Watts was assistant editor. It's a really, really good team. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a different culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The one thing I'll say is that actually, in some ways, that Sounds was ahead of certainly the NME in picking up on Definitely. bands like, well, Joy Division. I mean, Dave McCulloch was, and Mick Middles were very very early adopters. We did this issue, which I'm still very proud of, in which is Streets Ahead of the Enemy, which were then getting involved into social realist punk with Tony and Julie and all the rest yeah. of it. And we did this new music, two new music issues mm-hmm. in late October, early November 77, which had Kraftwerk, it had Devo, yep. it had Perubu, yep. it yep. had Disco, it had Dub, mm-hmm. it had Susie. Jane and I wrote the editorials, which were pretty whacked out. But actually, we were right. Yes. <laughs> because yeah. we were still interested in music as opposed to our own personal egos as being pumped up as quote-unquote stars mm. in the music. Yeah. I never wanted to be a music sure. star. Mm. Sure. But it was pathetic. I'm talking about Mary Harron. So we got an interview with Mickey Most for The Guardian in 1982. I found Mickey Most a fairly intriguing person. You know, an unashamedly pop producer. He had really no interest in albums. You know, it was all about a 45 RPM single. Whilst I could say at the time I hated a lot of what he produced, I listen back to it now with an enormous amount of fondness. He was the, the enabler for Chinichap, Prince, as, as among other things. And he says, what I like about pop music is that it has a value for five weeks and gives a lot of people pleasure, and then it's over. And that's pretty right. 
And he says, music should have no snob value at all. It shouldn't be a duty to like something. If you happen to enjoy Baby Sham and not Dom Perignon, then drink Baby Sham. Yeah, but nobody, nobody likes Baby Sham with, with, with Pete Doherty in Which is, is the analogy that sort of chinny chap were kind of the Baby yes. Sham. <laughs> well, well actually, actually, I do speak as somebody who is pretty much obsessed with Blockbuster by the Suite. Right. Um, well, I think we are. We, too. Are, we all we, are. We, we were talking about it the other day. Record. We yeah. love, love that. Yeah. The Chinny Chap sound, I think, is, 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 is dated really well. It's lasted a lot longer than were five weeks. Well, they were mud. Mud, hot chocolate, of course. Dynamite. Sweet, um, sweet Su- above Su- all. Susie Quattro. 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 Are they still alive? Mike Chapman's still around. Is, is, is I don't know. Mickey Chin is still alive. Yes. I interviewed him for my for my glam book, funnily enough. He lived at that point in a very nice flat off Sloan Square, so he'd done quite well out when, when I eventually got to meet Mickey most in 88 when my band were recording at Rack Studios mm. and his star had distinctly waned by then and you got the sense that he was a bit purposeless. Mm. You, you know, he would wander around the studio, mm. put his head in the door and talk very nicely to whichever band, Micro Disney records mm. that, and he came up to... Micro Disney. Micro Disney. Oof. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> Some of them friends of mine. Um, uh, uh, but, but I like people, this thing about Mickey Most as a sort of ghost in his own machine, yeah. you know, walking, drifting from studio to studio, then back up to his office with nothing really to do anymore. No, it, it, he, he produced all those Donovan albums in the 60s. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah. afterwards, Donovan really sort of never made a really good record. Uh, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Mm. I think his one area where he really didn't get it was Jeff Beck. Yeah. But, no, I mean, we like Mickey. He Beck, didn't understand that, that, you know, rock was morphing from, you know, the, the singles yeah. era into the album yeah. era. So he, yeah. didn't, he didn't get but that transition from the Yardbirds it, to Led Zeppelin. Absolutely. Really. In this interview, though, he says that he had no interest in the album no. era. So he couldn't have made that transition. No. So basically, Jeff Beck was the, the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was wasn't anything more than that. No, what, really yeah, well. But Beck a good album. It's a good, very good album. Mm, yeah. um, then the last thing I really want to talk about is uh, interview with Wet, Wet, Wet uh, <laughs> by Marl Peachy in the Mail on Sunday. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm being the, gagged. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they, they come over as ghastly, you know. And so uh, Marl writes, so Marty isn't chased down the road by teams of screaming girls anymore. I think we left that behind a year ago, he smiled. It was a conscious decision on behalf of the band to lose the part of the audience which would disappear as soon as someone came along with a nice smile or pelvic thrust Ooh. anyway. Well, that didn't work. That Get didn't, her. That didn't, indeed, that didn't work very well. <laughs> and also, they, they're talking the thing about, you know, we, you know, we aren't into alcohol and things like that. Well, of course, he then became a notorious junkie, didn't he, Marty Pella? He descended into heroin addiction. Yeah, they come over as... But uh, when my band were recording Muscle Shoals, it's around the same time that we were in Memphis doing that hopeless attempt. Oh, to the Memphis a, sessions with Willie Mitchell. Yeah. A guy came into the studio who had been in on the sessions and said Willie Mitchell was walking around with a bottle of vodka in his hand saying, why isn't this working? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, a bit like Primal Screaming, man. Well, 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 I know bugbears of yours. No. No. Anyway. No, no. Um, so that's, that's my love. That's your love. I met well, Bobby Gillespie and he's really nice. He is. He is the arch fanboy of yeah, rock and no, roll. But that's okay. Could, it's not a disqualification. Can't sing to save Never his could life, sing but. to save his life, exactly. But still, good taste. Yeah. Good taste in soul music. I like, I mean, also, when you appeared on that TV show with the dreadful Andrew Neil and they were all dancing and he just sits there. And that's one of the best looks ever. <laughs> he's just, he can't believe he's actually there. <laughs> and if he could teleport himself out of there, he would do. 
<laughs> you can actually see him trying to call up interplanetary craft. Take me out of here! Take ah. me out of here! Ah. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> so I really, really enjoyed that. Brilliant. Well, look, I think our time's up, so yep. it remains for both of us to thank you so thank much, John, for coming in. Great, thank you. Great, great um, to have you just yeah. a, a joy to see you and a joy to talk to you about Joy Division yeah. and everything else. So good luck with the book. It is tremendous. And we're going to go out with Dizzy Rascal talking about his stabbing in an eye in Napier, which is, he tells in fairly riveting detail. I'm not happy note. I'm not happy note. Yes. See you next week. Bye. Bye. I know that people ask you about when you got stabbed, but you're okay now, aren't you? That was an IE Napier, wasn't it, in Cyprus? Yeah. yeah. Was was that to do with you know rivalry between rival gangs and something or kind of. In, in, in ways, like it's another thing. Like it used to be just, just typical petty shit. Like that was a time where I was, I was in a lot of wild shit. Though, it wasn't the first time people pulled out, someone pulled out a knife on me or whatever. It's something that's so old now. It was something that at the time was so deep that it was something that I weren't really to, willing to talk about in the press. And like that. okay. that's, that's some shit that. Yeah. Okay. And how long ago was that? That was what, uh, 2002, I think it was. 2000. Yeah. But you survived. You're okay. No lasting effects. Just got scars. 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 What, in your chest and. Chest, back, legs. God, they had a go then, yeah. They tried to kill me, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How long were you in the hospital? I checked myself out after two days. That was Dizzy Rascal in conversation with Maureen Payton in 2007, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest John Savage, whose new Joy Division book, This Searing Light, The Sun and Everything Else, is available now from all good bookshops. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison-Bowie. As ever, you can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.